two days were very nice. I think everybody has cabin fever. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning as we do every single week looking at 1 Peter, and it's our practice to start 1 Peter and go through it till we're finished. And then, of course, I'm going to be going to 2 Peter after this. That would be logical. And um, so the messages are connected. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're looking at verse 13 through 17 this morning. And let me read that section of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God, for the privilege to be able to have it in our hands, to have Bibles that we can take with us wherever we go. So I pray, Lord, that the Bible would become our constant companion and that we would desire to know as much as it as we can. But I pray, Lord, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of it. So I pray, Lord, that we would be conscious of practicing what we are actually learning. And I pray as we do that, Lord, we could do what Peter said, that by our behavior, part of our behavior is the the reason why we get people's attention, that we're different. We're not like other people only because of Christ, and the Spirit of God is transforming us and making us new. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities by the way we live to be able to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know you, that they may come to know you. And I pray you would bless us this morning with an understanding about what it means to learn submission to the different groups that are mentioned in 1 Peter. And I pray, Lord, today that one group being governing authorities that are over us, that we would learn to submit properly. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning, as we're looking at this text, in some ways, once we become believers, we have to learn anew how to understand and deal with ourselves and then how to live with others. We have to learn that all over again because we live in this world that has been twisted and complicated by sin. And we've been called already citizens of another kingdom. Our mandate then as aliens and strangers on the earth is to live in in accord with a higher standard, keeping in mind our alien nationality and our temporary residencies, keeping in mind what God has done for us in salvation, keeping in mind who we are in Christ, keeping in mind... We are in a spiritual warfare, and we are to avoid and keep ourselves free from the old impulses that belong to the flesh. The war is between our renewed spirit and our fallen nature, keeping in mind that we have a new master, Christ, and a new relationship to sin. We are dead to sin and, of course, alive to righteousness, keeping in mind that the Holy Spirit who indwells us is making this change in us through the truth, through, through, through the word of God in our mind. He is transforming us and he's developing in our heart deep biblical convictions. And in turn, we want to do what is right. We want to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord Jesus Christ in all our behavior. And then keeping in mind our new inner commitment to live before God in all holy behavior is accompanied by a Christian duty 
to live responsibly before unbelievers. And that's what we looked at last week. Verse 12, if you notice there, it says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, Last time we learned this, that we are to submit to a new particular course of conduct so that we as followers of Christ can demonstrate an alien lifestyle with the goal of proclaiming the gospel in order to win others to Christ so that they can become citizens of heaven and of the kingdom of heaven that on the day of judgment they may give glory to God because someone adorned the gospel with their lifestyle and shared with them verbally the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and became a born-again believer. So this brings me to today, to continue to unpack the next section of Peter, with the subject of submission. We are to learn to properly submit to others. Now, as the the text breaks down in the next few weeks, we are, first of all, going to be submitting to governing authorities. Then we are going to submit to those who are in our household, masters that are over us, and then subjection in family structures. We're going to be looking at husbands and wives and wives and husbands and how that fits. But today, we're going to be looking at, as God's children living in this world, we must be learning submission. We must be learning submission. Submit implies putting oneself under the authority of another or to take a subordinate place. Of course, right in verse number 13, it says, submit yourselves. It's a command in that passage of Scripture. All right? So we have to learn that. That's not something that comes naturally. So we are to submit to the governing authorities. Now, the principle of submission is now applied within the context of interaction of believers with non-believers in the area, in areas of, of very social relationships. There are certain behaviors Christians are to maintain. First, inward loyalty, a certain behavior that pleases the Lord. We looked at that last time. And secondly, an outward submission. So here's in the first application of a Christian's responsibilities in their behavior of how they are to relate to governing authorities within any form of government that they may find themselves or that they may live in. I believe the great difference in applying the principle of submission then as to now is that we have a level of pushback to our government without fear of uh, much serious punishment. Under the Roman Empire, in which Peter wrote, like Nero, if you push back against their government, it probably would mean imprisonment or most likely death. And there are still governments in the world today that are have that kind of philosophy and mentality that you don't say much against the government. You don't push back against the government. If you do, you will suffer the consequences. However, we must all be discerning concerning the changing tides of our political landscape in our country because things could change very quickly. In any case, Christians ought to be aware of the biblical principles in regard to legitimate Human governments. In other words, there's another, there's a particular way to behave whatever country you live in. Because all the biblical principles apply no matter where you live on the earth, no matter 
what government you live under. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning is in learning submission in this area is, is submission is to governing authorities, and it is a command in Scripture. And if you notice in verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors. Let me just stop there. So if we apply the definition of the term submit, it would imply that Christians are to willingly put themselves under the authority of governing bodies or to arrange one's life under the authority of another. Now, the second part of that definition would assume some freedom on the part of the one submitting. The second part of the definition, probably that is to arrange one's life under the authority of another, mostly likely would apply to people that are under a democratic type of government where there is more wiggle room. But I just want to mention that these Christians that were written to first in First Peter were Christians that had no rights. We have rights as citizens of the United States, but so that and if they had rights, there were limited rights. And even if they were Christians, those rights could have been limited because they were Christians. So for us, the secular hierarchy would be the local, the state, and the federal government. We as Christians are to submit to the authority of these institutions and the persons representing these institutions. Now, we live in a day where there is much disrespect to, uh, toward all authority. Many uh, even rebel against our own government. Some Christians have taken a wrong attitude towards secular government in its, uh, as to its laws and its leaders, and rightfully so in, in some ways as, as they think of it. But even though we may strongly disagree with, with or, uh, some or the things that our local, state, and federal governments do and how they run, run things, Christians still need to gain scriptural understanding of their responsibility toward government. So there's a proper motive behind this submission to govern, governing authorities. And so that's what we saw. There, there's a command, but there is a motive. And notice in verse number 13, it says, Submit yourself, notice, for the Lord's sake. You don't want to miss that. See, this is the, the second motive given for our active obedience to submit. The first was found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. In other words, because the lost world is looking on our life, we are to submit to a particular course of conduct. For what reason? For the lost's sake. But here we are to submit to governing authorities for the Lord's sake. See, that's the primary reason believers are to submit. The sovereign Lord has put in the world three institutions, which he has actually ordained for the good of mankind. What are they? The first is the home. The second institution is that of human government. And the third is the local church. God established the principles of maintaining law and order in society by means of governing authorities. Governments, in other words, are ordained by God. God gave society the right to enforce laws and even to use the use of capital punishment when necessary. Now, that means that God is sovereign. Daniel chapter 2, verse number 21 says, It is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Who does this? God does this. 
And he does this in a world that is sinful. If we did not have government, what would happen? If we did not have that thin blue line between us and big government, what would happen? There would be anarchy. There would be, it would be a terrible place, actually, to live. But God is sovereign over the fears of the world. He is sovereign over Satan and sin. He's sovereign all, over all governments and military power. He is sovereign over nature and natural disaster. He is sovereign over sickness and disease. He is sovereign over every human being. And with all that sovereignty, we must keep in mind that God's sovereignty does not excuse human sinfulness or irresponsibility. It never does. So God gives authority on the earth. And that same truth is repeated in a passage of Scripture like Proverbs chapter 8 and verse number 15 and 16, where it says this, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. So if God did not give authority to governments, they would possess none. The most unjust and wicked rulers in the world have no power but what is given them from above. Remember when Pilate was talking to Jesus and he said that he had the authority to put him to death? And what did Jesus say to him? He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. That's what he told them. So God has ordained and given authority to governments for mankind's benefit. Now, we may not think of it that way, but it is, especially today is April 15th, right? Today is tax. Your taxes are due by Tuesday, all right? Hopefully you did them, all right? And the government doesn't fool around. When it comes to taxes, they want your money. And I found out they get it, and you can't do much about it, right? And some people get very upset about it. Sometimes I do. And I think to myself, well, wow, you know, I give a lot of money to the government. You know, and I'm not too pleased about how they use it. Matter of fact, I don't even know how they use it. But I do like driving on nice paved roads. And I do like lights that work at the intersection. And I do like the structure that we do have, and that has to be paid for, right? And who pays for it? We all pay for it. We all chip in and pay for it. So in looking at this subject this morning, there is a third thing, and it's, it's the benefit under the governing authorities. It actually benefits us. And notice in verse number 14 what it says. It benefits us in two specific ways. Number one, in verse 14, it says this. Or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. That's the first way it benefits us. Private citizens and individuals do not have the authority to punish evildoers. Those who do evil, God has given the power to government, to carry out justice and wrath, to make laws and to enforce them. The vigilante, the lone ranger, the rogue cop mindset who takes upon himself the responsibility to take vengeance and get justice makes for a great suspense-filled story for film or media. But in reality, individual human beings have not been given that authority to take any kind of vengeance. In fact, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So even though governments carry their responsibility out in an imperfect system, it is still for our benefit and protection. Even though Even the most flawed system is often better than nothing. I mean, people even say today, if we didn't take 
without uh, Saddam, the Middle East would be better off. If we didn't take back, uh, take down Gaddafi, the Middle East would be better off. And there's probably some truth to that because these guys actually knew how to take care of some of the factions in their country, but they were ruthless. And they were, uh, I guess, it is what it is today, is it not? But thinking of that, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, notice what it says. It says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, another passage of Scripture along the same line in Romans, because Romans talks about it too, is in Romans 13, verse 4 and 5, where it says, For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So, God gave governing authorities the right to enforce laws in order to prevent chaos and mayhem and anarchy and then at the same time maintain peace while promoting the free flow of human beings and the protection of them and the rights of citizens. And how do they do that? By use of security forces like policemen and the military and by the use of our judicial system, even to take, make use of capital punishment to punish evildoers when necessary, the government has actually been given the authority to do that. Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. And of course, the passage that I just read there, if you notice the middle of the passage in verse 4, it says, for it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the government has been given the authority by God to even carry out capital punishment if need be to rid evil from a society. So for the one ruling, justice is God's primary demand on human authorities. They must judge fairly, shunning bribes so that they may be impartial in their judgment. I love that passage of Scripture in Proverbs where it says, a king who sits on the throne of justice disperses evil with his eyes. And then it also says in Proverbs 29 too, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. So that is the first benefit, is that the government is given to us to take care of evil, to suppress evil, to keep evil in its place. So we can pretty much freely move around without much fear in our country. But there is a second thing, and that is in our passage of Scripture, and that is this. In verse number 14, it's not only the punishment of evildoers, but notice what it says in verse number 14, but the praise of those who do right. That's government responsibility too. Now maybe this is what government needs to do more of, and maybe we need to take notice of it more when it does do it. When a citizen has in some way done something good, they should be publicly praised by the government whether it's a private citizen, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a military personnel, they should be praised 
by the government for doing something that is good. And they often do that. But sometimes it never trickles down to the public. It never gets down to the local media about some of the things that people are doing in the world, in our country, that are actually good. So this public praise for doing good should, should encourage onlookers to endeavor to do the same. The power of a good character, a good deed, a good example should not be downplayed. It actually should be upplayed. If the government and media would give equal time to such things, they actually would encourage more good deeds and produce maybe even better citizens. But that's part of the government. But that's also saying to us that we ought to be the people that are actually doing the good deeds. So that brings me to a second thing under this command, and it's this. Submission is God's method and will. If you notice in verse 15, it says right there. Now, of course, here is that uh, one of those clear answers to that often asked question, what is the will of God? Well, here it is. It says in verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So in other words, this is the way God wants Christians to act no matter what no matter, under, no matter what government system they are under. So it is good and wise, it is the good and wise will of God for you and me to be the best possible citizens in the society in which we live. And the world should be able to look at really a believer, at a Christian, and see what a good citizen should be. All right, however... Onlookers are usually ready to point out the blunders, the mistakes, and the mishaps of Christians, as we're going to find out in 1 Peter, that there's a lot of verbal abuse against the Christians that is unjustified. So how are believers going to silence their critics? That's the question. Well, according to our text, they're going to silence the critics by living an exemplary life within society. So Christians actually put down slander and silence ignorant and foolish people by living consistently good lives, by living an alien lifestyle within the goal to proclaim the gospel in order to win others to Christ so that they would become citizens of the kingdom of God. In other words, how do they do that? They're, do, they're, they're to do that by doing what is right, if you notice our passage, it says in verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, the Bible is assuming that believers know what is right and what is the thing to do that honors him and that they know now from the word of God that by doing that, they can actually silence people that are against them. The reason why believers should do good among unbelievers, well, let me just let you know that the foolish person in our passage of Scripture is the person who's placed, who places themselves against God, who actually disregards God. And the people and the things that represent the true and living God. Like it says in Proverbs, 122, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. And then also, not only in Psalm 14, verse 1, but Psalm 53, verse number 1, and the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So, see, those are the ones who are coming against often the believers who are living in society. Christians are not, are not to be rebels. They are not anarchists. They are not revolutionaries. 
if there is a lawful way to make change, they should endeavor to make the change lawfully. So then, we are to seek good, the good of our country, and doing nothing or joining in nothing that tends to disturb the peace that God's giving, given us. We ought to be respectful, law-abiding citizens which have the right attitude towards those in leadership over us. Also, the Christian can never forget that there is never, there is really no one more free than a Christian. The followers of Christ, remember, it was also God's will for you to be saved. It was God's will for you to have the Spirit of God. And you have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. A Christian yielded to the Spirit of God is a powerful force of divine energy within a society. The Word of God has made you free in Christ. Christians, therefore, are to submit to governing authorities willfully and freely. Now, that's why it says in our text, if you notice, the next thing in verse number 16, it says we are to act as free people. It says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So in other words, submission by the believer is a matter of free choice, a free choice to resist or to comply, to cooperate or to not cooperate with fellow citizens and also with ruling authorities. Peter, of course, anticipates by, by this passage of Scripture that some of his readers would object that the, man, the, the demand of submission to human rulers actually goes against the principle of freedom of the believer in Christ. So people were thinking, I don't want to obey because I don't agree with anything they're doing. I don't want to obey because I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to obey. And there's a multitude of reasons why people come up with why they don't want to submit. There are many ways to abuse freedom. One way could be to say, I think our taxes are too high and the money unfairly distributed and misused, so I'm not going to pay them. I've met Christians that, and I had conversations with Christians who actually very strongly believed that. And um, I guess they didn't read this part of the Bible because this part of the Bible is really showing us that that would be against what God is actually commanding. Now, here's a good example. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And look at verse number 14. Let's start there. Remember, this is uh, this is an example found in this passage of Scripture about people who kind of had the same type of, of uh, pushback. And this is what it says in Mark chapter 12, verse 14. It says, they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? They wanted to know. Why? Because they didn't want to pay. But he said, knowing their hypocrisy, in other words, knowing their evil, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So Jesus really gave a masterly reply, which really amazes opponents, and stopped the delegation in their tracks. And Jesus, with a very innocent question addressed to him, actually to entrap him, exposes their evil and hypocrisy and Satan-like craftiness. And look at what it says in verse 16. 
It says, they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So here comes Jesus' unexpected response, a response that the well-coached delegation did not even consider. Caesar's image, Caesar's likeness and inscription was on the coin. All right, so Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Man, they did not expect that. All right, in other words, that coin has the image of Caesar on it, but God's image is on every human being. So, give the emperor his coinage, give him all the obligation due him, and then also, you are created in God's image, give them, give him all the obligations that are due him. So Jesus places the two obligations side by side. There is no clash between them. They actually harmonize. Paying Roman taxes was not in conflict to a person's obligation to God. In the providences of God, the Jews are emperors, the emperor's subjects and are under the legitimacy of Roman government. Now, that was something that the Jewish delegation there did not uh, like at all. And so what was their response in verse 17? And they were amazed at him. You know what that means? They had no idea what to, how to respond to that. Not know that, that they, he so tipped their philosophy and mindset on its head that they actually had to agree with it. So, by the way, is it God's will that we pay taxes? Well, let's take our Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. And notice what it says there. It says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, rendered to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we would have to answer that question in the affirmative. It might be added that if tax reforms or other kinds of reforms are necessary for the public welfare, Christians should exert whatever influence they have to affect those changes lawfully. So, back to our text in 1 Peter, and we find this, that we're talking about freedom, a freedom that has been given to believers, and that freedom is to make choices. And so, Peter is making sure that we make the right choice, because in our text, if a believer uses their freedom incorrectly, to disobey those placed over them in areas where God says we should submit, then we actually disobey God's sovereign authority. Yes, you and I are free from sin. Yes, you and I are free from the law. Yes, you and I are free from condemnation. Yes, you and I are free from death. But If you take notice to the last part of verse number 16, it says this, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, and here it is, but use it as bond slaves of God. In other words, Paul is, Peter is actually giving us an answer to our freedom. He's saying this is how to look at freedom. Peter says, live as servants of God. Christians are free from sin, but they are slaves to God. 
Freedom never means being free to do what you want. You're free to do what the dear Lord requires. In fact, again, while your hand is there, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 2. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 2, it says this. For he who called, for he who was called in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while free is the Lord's slave. See, Christ bought us out of the slave market of sin to be free people who then should willfully put ourselves at God's service as servants of Jesus Christ. So whatever the Lord commands, that's what we should do. And this is what he commands his people, that we ought to have a right perspective on the governing authorities because they are for our good, but we do have a responsibility in that system to properly respond in the way that pleases and honors God. Because in that way, we actually put down the foolish people, the gainsayers, and the ones that are against us. Because they look at us and they say, how come you're not against this? And how come you're not protesting over here? And how come you're not doing those things other people do? And you can tell them why you're not doing it. All right, but in saying all that, the question has to come up, and the question is this. What do you do when the call to subjection goes against Christian duty? See, that's the problem. Well, if you look up back at verse number 13 of chapter 2, it says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king, to a president, to a prime minister, to whoever, whatever the person's called, right? And, of course, the one, uh, as the one in authority and, of course, those who are under him carrying out all the necessary things the government ought to do. But what if the government tells us to do something immoral or anti-biblical or if the government tells us not to do what God said we should do? So that question brings to my mind that then there must be, in Scripture, limits to our obedience. A good example in Scripture is found in Acts chapter 4 and 5, where the Roman authorities were trying to get the Apostle Peter to stop speaking publicly about Christ. Peter and John told the authorities that if it came down to whether they would obey God or man, they would obey God and disobey man. Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, it says in your Bible, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So there's a clear indication right there in Scripture where they disobeyed uh, those who were had some authority, whether, whether religiously or politically. So that means there are, there are limits to our obedience. And, of course, that takes wisdom, and those two limits would really fall under the extent of our Christian submission. And what would that extent be? Well, it would be we are not to, are called upon to obey laws that violate morality. Uh, Like if somebody, the government tells us to, that we are commanded to get an abortion, that we can disobey that, that would be a moral issue. There's many moral issues we can talk about. I have no time to do that at this moment. But things like that, or if they tell us that we cannot, uh, the second one, that we can preach, we can't meet together as a church, and we cannot hold the Bible in our, our home, we have a Bible in our home, or we can't preach somewhere, then we have to 
disobey them, right? We have to say, no, we cannot obey you. We have to actually disobey you. But in every case, even in the book of Acts, when an apostle or a believer disobeyed government or even the religious part of the government in, at that time, what happened to them? They didn't just slap their hand and let them go, right? They either beat them, put them in prison. They did something to them to try to send a message. You can't do that, but no matter what they did, because God was moving and because it's God's will, no one is going to hold back the gospel. No government, because God is sovereign over governments, right? And God's will is for us to proclaim the gospel. So, what did Peter finally say to them? He said to them, we must obey God rather than man. So here's the bottom line, that if the civil powers command something that God forbids or forbid something that God commands, we must disobey. We must. I came across a good point while studying, which offered really a good observation on the subject. This is what the person said. They said, in Scripture, the believer's submission to human authorities is always partial and proximate. Proximate, excuse me. Blind obedience is never required. The Christian is always, in principle, ready to rebel, ready to say no in the face of wicked, a wicked command, for we must obey God rather than men. I think that's a good way of putting it. If the times come that we must disobey, we must do it respectfully. We must use every legal channel to express our protest. If we resort to anarchy or promote to promote our cause, no matter how noble, we are violating the principle of submission to authorities. Violence and vandalism and other destructive acts are to be avoided by believers at all costs, at all times. But there are biblical examples of God's people refusing to obey laws that violate morality and hinder obedience to God. We take the midwives of Egypt, right? They refused to murder the newborn Hebrew boys. They refused to do that under the king's order, uh, the Pharaoh's order. They refused to do it because they wanted to obey God rather than man. You take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image, even though the penalty for refusal was to be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. You take Daniel, refused to obey the law of King Darius, forbidding anyone to pray to God, even though to refuse meant to be thrown into the lion's den. As I was reading my chronological daily Bible reading this week, I came across the story of King Saul when he ordered his bodyguards to massacre the priests of the Lord, and they refused, even though they knew they probably would be severely punished or be put to death. They still refused, most likely because they saw it was wrong, evil, and displeasing to the Lord. They knew there was a higher authority than King Saul. John the Baptist spoke out against the immoral lives of King Herod and his stolen wife even though he faced imprisonment and then finally was beheaded. So see, all those situations in scriptures, and, and, and ones I didn't even mention, say that a Christian has to have a very strong understanding of where they stand with God, but also where they stand in relationship to governing authorities. How should I act with them? What should I do if they impress upon me something that I know is biblically wrong or immoral? Am I going to wimp out? Am I going to say nothing, or am I going to take a stand in the right way? Right? 
I mean, come on, let's face it. If they, if they tell us we can't meet together, we're going to meet together. Somewhere, if it's someone, there's some tree somewhere, we're going to meet together, right? If, if they, they take your property, we're going to meet. As long as we have air to breathe and blood running through our veins and we have a Bible in our hand, we're going to meet somewhere, right? You don't have to have building and grounds to meet. Any, God owns the earth. We'll meet anywhere. Now, that, that means that you may have to change your meeting place every week. It may come to that. In some countries, it's like that for Christians. I mean, we're, we have a cream puff existence as Christians. We really do. We, we, we don't even know what persecution is. But there definitely is persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ right now that is imaginable to us. And even looking at what they're going through, you have to honestly say to yourself, if that happened to me, can I go through that? Would I survive? Would I denounce the name of Christ? What would I do if I was in a situation like that? If you live in America, you are blessed with its freedoms and opportunities. That is not the case with many of our Christian brethren spread throughout the world. For them, because they are Christian, they are actually a threat, a threat to their own government authorities. I was reading an article actually in, the, in a magazine this week, and it said this. I was surprised to read it in this particular magazine. It says it has been reported in a recent publication that the persecution of Christians in other nations is not solely inflicted at the hands of Islamic radicals, but also authoritarian governments and social tribalism, their faith seen as an affront to their country's dominant religious group and also a threat to tradition, national values, and government regimes. And that brings persecution upon believers. But that brings me to the last point this morning, and it's this. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 17, when you read this passage of Scripture, you may read it and think, well, you know, um, in other words, you bypass it real fast, and you don't get what it's saying there and how it's structured, it's, it's, it's really structured in a very important way. In fact, it's structured in this way. If you don't know the priority structure that you're supposed to have as a believer, here it is. When it comes to this particular subject of, sub, of subjection and governing authorities, that there are attitudes of Christian Subjection and these attitudes are to all the levels and groups of people. And here, of course, is the first one. Notice what it says in verse 17 it says, Honor all people. All right? Or respect all people. Now, what does that mean as far as these Christians and us today? Well, all people, these are the outsiders. The external relationships that we will have with people that who are on the same level with us. In other words, Christians are to respect all human beings because they are created in the image of God. They are to do this irregardless of social status, race, gender, creed, skin color, and nationality. We are to respect all people, no matter who they are. That's a Christian mandate. Now, and that's a very important one that I can't say that everybody follows that. But that's the general one. And that's to the external group. But then we move to the internal group. The second thing it says, love the brotherhood. Right? That's the internal group. That these are the insiders. The internal relationships we will have with our Christian family. 
us also being on the same level. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we have a special family connection to them. We bear the image of Jesus Christ because we have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are family, right? Matter of fact, we are more family than our family because we are in Christ. And what do we do to the brothers? The brotherhood, we are to love them. We're to be loyal to them. Right now, he's he already covered some of that in our in the first part of First Peter, but that's what we're doing. And then it moves to the second internal category, and that is to fear the fear and reverence of God. In verse seventeen, fear God. So Christians are insiders with God because of Christ's work on the cross. However, God is above us and is sovereign King. Therefore, he is the only one we are to fear. The fear of God refers to reverence as well as terror because he is sovereign over all. And you, did you you remember this passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28? This is what it says. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? That's God. So we're to fear God. So that's the inward relationships we have with our brothers and with God. And then, of course, the last one would be this, honor and respect the king. Right, So now we move to the outside group again. But this outside group, the outsiders, the external relationships we will have with people that are above us. In other words, they have authority over us. Now, if you notice here, no fear to the king or emperor, to the president, to the prime minister. Honor and respect, but only God should receive our fear. Kings should fear the sovereign Lord because it is, will show that they know they are responsible to God. Like Samuel, 2 Samuel 23, 3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. So according to Scripture, once a person is in office, there should always be a display of respect and honor for the person who holds the office. Why? Because God says so. Because God has ordained ruling authorities. God has granted to us our president in office, and they are ministers of God, whether they acknowledge it or not. And the watching world takes notice the way the Christian community extends proper honor to their governmental leaders. So what is the best way to honor our leaders? I believe the best way is to, because we are citizens in this country and we are to promote its welfare, is to pray for them. To pray for them. That would be one of them. That's not the only one, but that is one of them. Right? The dutiful responsibility of the Christian falls under all these. To pray for them that they will be just, to pray for those who rule that they would fear God, to pray for them that they will punish evildoers, to pray for them that they will praise do-gooders or people who do good, and that they, we would pray that they would be converted to Christ. And why are we to do all this? Why are we to even be involved with this kind of responsibility in the word of God. Well, I want everybody to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, and I'll close with this. And let's not forget what it says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. If we want to move the king's heart, if we want to move the leadership's heart, if we want to move the president's heart and those who surround him, 
we ought to be praying to the Lord that he would move the channels of their heart. He turns it whatever way he wishes. That's what God does. But notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says this. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Do you see the benefit we have by doing this? Don't you want to live a tranquil and quiet life? You do. Everybody does. In all godliness and dignity, though. And then when we do that, you know what that is? That's something that is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. So, see, that should be our the end result of us following this command to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to those governing authorities that are above us, no matter where, where we might find ourselves living in the world, that we would learn to navigate the waters so we give honor to God and that we have an influence there where we live by being respectful and loyal to the brotherhood, that we would fear and reverence God and that we would honor and respect those in authority. That's God's will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. I thank you, Lord, for the instruction that we find in it. For, Lord, without the instruction, we wouldn't really know how to really respond to some of these things. But, Lord, because it's in the word of God, and I pray, Lord, for those who were listening and those who were taking notes and those who were thinking through these things that you would place in their heart a desire to want to be one of those people that actually carries these things out. Make us discerning, prayerful citizens of this country. And I pray, Lord, that we would do it in a way with an ultimate goal, not only to honor you, Lord, but to be able to get the attention of people because we're different so that we may share the gospel so they too may become citizens of the kingdom of God. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.